I can have your attention, please. Thank you all for uh, taking your seats, and uh, it's my pleasure to speak to you again. I um, want to reiterate a few things. I'm Christopher Preble, the Director of Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato, who, along with Jim Harper and Benjamin Friedman, are the three co-chairs for this uh, Strategic Counterterrorism Initiative here at Cato, uh, made possible by the generous support of the Atlantic Philanthropies and with the additional support of the Open Society Institute. Um, I have already welcomed those of you who are here this morning, but for new arrivals, welcome again. Uh, and to those of you watching online, I understand there's a very spirited uh, discussion going on uh, on Twitter, which I'm too old to understand. But uh, I'm, told, uh, I'm told there is a conversation going on. And those of you who would like to participate in the conversation uh, is hashtag CT09. That's pound sign 09. Uh, and those of you who are here in the auditorium and elsewhere around here at Cato can access that via uh, wireless. Um, I really don't need to introduce... Uh, that much, our next speaker, Steve Cole, who uh, is known to many of you. Um, he is the uh, president and CEO of New America Foundation, author of uh, many books, two of which are directly relevant uh, to our discussion today. The first, Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden from the Soviet Invasion to September 10th, 2001, which was published in 2004. Uh, which is an absolutely outstanding book, and his latest book, The Bin Ladens, An American Family in the American Century, which was published in 2008. Um, just a few words of those of you who don't know. Uh, uh, Steve has uh, uh, received a number of professional awards, including two Pulitzer Prizes. Uh, he did win the, uh, 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 the Pulitzer Prize in 2005 for his book, Ghost Wars, which also won the Council on Foreign Relations author Arthur Ross Award and the Overseas Press Club Award and the Lionel Gelber Prize, for the best book published on international affairs during, during 2004. Um, a number of other awards, but uh, without any further ado, I know you all want to hear what Steve has to say. He'll speak for uh, a little while and also hopefully have a few minutes for Q&A. So please well, join me in welcoming Steve Cole. Thanks, Chris. Good afternoon. Uh, see a few familiar faces, and I will try to be useful to you uh, on the subject of the broad uh, question the conference is addressing, which is the next administration's counterterrorism policies and strategies. Uh, there are people here who know more about that than I do, but I can probably synthesize a few themes and maybe provoke some questions when uh, I turn it over to you. I should make clear that I have no direct or firsthand participation in the transition or I'm not drawing on any uh, inside information here. I know a number of the people involved, and I can interpolate uh, from who they are and what they're saying. But I think there's a fair amount that's yet to be decided and yet to be made clear, and I'll try to at least frame what I think is at issue uh, in two categories, looking to the next administration's first six months as they review what they've inherited and try to define their own strategy looking ahead. One set of uh, inheritances were highlighted by the president-elect's interview with uh, ABC yesterday, which is inherited practices and policies that the president-elect has already made clear he wishes to review and revise. So I'll just give you a quick tour of what I think is settled and unsettled in that inheritance. 
And then there's the substance itself, which is what will the Obama administration's counterterrorism strategy and policies be? What will the first presidential decision directive uh, about this uh, important aspect of, of foreign and security policy sound like? What will it be framed around? And what are the substantive problems that uh, – policy problems in particular regions that – that this counterterrorism strategy will address? And will there be any really significant departures from the Bush administration's regional policies? I'll try to touch on that as best I can. Some areas I know better than others. Pakistan, for instance, I'll, I'll offer some thoughts about that. So on the uh, – I try not to dwell on the inherited uh, uh, interrogation and detention policies, but it is clear from the public discourse that – to a much greater degree than al-Qaeda itself or, or um, uh, policy in the federally administered tribal areas on the Pac- Pakistan-Afghanistan border, that sorting out a new approach to interrogation and detention policy is going to preoccupy the administration in its first months. And I think if you uh, take the time to read through the transcript of the president-elect's interview yesterday, you'll have the clearest account of where he begins as he undertakes this. Uh, my reading of his remarks uh, is that he's quite clear about interrogation policy. Essentially, the Uniform Code of Military Justice is going to be his guideline, and he's going to act, I think, fairly quickly. Uh, he'll hear any dissenting views, but he's going to act fairly quickly, I think, to publicly enshrine uh, UCMJ as the basis for all interrogation policy going forward. Uh, and I don't know whether there are any nuances uh, to, beyond that broad observation, but that does seem to be the heart. And he spoke with some uh, clarity and confidence about that yesterday, I thought. On detention, he's discovering what any uh, wonk who's familiar with the Guantanamo case file would know, which is that it's frustrating because there are 60 to 70 to 80 cases where uh, it's just not clear how you get from here to there. They're working on it. The process is uh, underway. But as I understand the nature of these files and the nature of the problems associated with them, both the dangerousness of the individuals in question, the the frustrating character of the evidence against them, some of which is incomplete, some of which comes from intelligence sources and could never really be brought forward even into a military tribunal – and some of which may be tainted by interrogation policies that the Obama administration is now about to repudiate, that you end up with a bunch of case files that you almost have to review one by one in order to get practical, sustainable results. And and as the president-elect signaled yesterday, it's going to take time uh, first to surround those case files with a new policy framework and then to actually go through them and dispose of the cases Uh, So I think he was uh, essentially signaling those who were looking for a dramatic uh, gesture uh, closing down Guantanamo uh, that 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 was not going to happen in the first 30 days. Uh, He does have some, as I understand it, and this is – there are probably attorneys here who know more about the particular uh, cases before the federal and uh, Supreme Court where the Obama administration is going to have to make early declarations of its attitude towards certain Uh, dilemmas in detention policy, they'll have to go through that process of deciding what they think about the constitutional issues, and then they'll have to go through these Guantanamo case files in order to fulfill that pledge. Um, You know, there's there's a couple of other areas where I have heard, at least for my part, much less signaling of intent, and that involves 
the operational aspects of the inherited campaign against al-Qaeda and al-Qaeda-affiliated group. For example, uh, the, the, the policies associated with extraordinary rendition. Now, uh, there has been a great deal of controversy during the Bush years about the practice of extraordinary rendition, particularly in cases where uh, mistakes were made or where suspects were delivered to countries with uh, records of torturing detainees and where, in fact, rendered suspects were tortured. And this has been the subject of a great deal of discourse and commentary. However, the policy of rendition uh, dates predates the Bush administration. And, in fact, in its current form, uh, it's, it's really a product of Clinton administration uh, policymaking and deliberation. The full history of uh, this rendition policy is uh, still shrouded to some extent by classification, but the outlines of it are plain, and sometimes it surfaces in the federal courts uh, in appellate cases. But essentially, the United States asserts a right to uh, seize fugitives that it designates uh, on foreign sovereign territory for the purpose of rendering them to justice. Now, exactly what that means is something that has, I think, evolved uh, and, and varies from case to case. At a minimum, the United States has always asserted the right, and I think the U.S. Supreme Court has affirmed its right, to uh, seize on foreign sovereign territory suspect fugitives from U.S. justice. So certainly, I would imagine the Obama administration will continue to support rendition to U.S. courts where, a, for example, a murder indictment is delivered against an individual or a group. But the uh, Clinton administration went further than that, and it was willing to render uh, fugitives to justice in third countries. Uh, so if there were, if there were a, an Egyptian or a, a, a British uh, or other indictment against an individual, the United States uh, would, in these operations, seize individuals and, and turn them over to a third country. And I think that these are questions that are going to be uh, reviewed and debated. And I think my impression is that there are quite sharply different views within the group that's going to be coming into the Obama administration about this question. It'll be interesting to watch it play out. There's an equally sensitive series of operational directives about uh, individuals who are designated as targets uh, for counterterrorism operation, high-value targets, how such individuals are designated, what operational authorities then devolve to the intelligence services or to the military to try to locate and then attack those individuals. And the Obama administration is going to have to sort through what it thinks about the inherited approach to, to that continuing campaign and, and adjust it as, uh, as it chooses. And again, I think there will be fairly intense early debate uh, within the group that comes into office about how, uh, how much to revise in these inherited operational policies. And that's because, to some extent, uh, the Obama administration inher inherits a dilemma that the Clinton administration knew and that the Bush administration uh, wrestled with uh, in its own way, which is that you have on the one hand, uh, a very powerful imperative to try to protect your presidency from disruptive attacks uh, by al-Qaeda or its affiliated or like-minded groups. Uh, there are, obviously, it's the first duty of the President of the United States to keep American citizens and interests safe from enemies of this character, but there's also obviously a political equation as well. The President, uh, in these circumstances, uh, is going to want to do everything possible to ensure that the transformative and ambitious and very difficult 
projects of domestic policy that have been designated as the priority for this uh, new administration because of the crisis that the administration has inherited are not inhibited or disrupted by failures, early failures in counterterrorism or foreign policy. And so there's going to be, I think, a bias toward um, going carefully in this direction. This is an administration that has not only inherited uh, a very complicated counterterrorism campaign and uh, a, a still extant, if diminished, uh, an ambitious enemy, but also two very difficult uh, wars. Uh, any one of those three theaters could disrupt this presidency before it gets started, and I think there's a self-consciousness about that in the transition team and a determination to try to protect the presidency from early problems of that, of that character. But then to look forward and to imagine some of the discourse that will inform this imagined first presidential decision directive, um, I think you can start with the language and the optics. There will, there will clearly be a new attempt to wrestle with this inherited language of war on terror and to replace it with something else. Uh, the, you know, the Bush administration itself went through a couple of uh, attempts to, to replace uh, GWAT and never quite got there after considering uh, various alternatives. And uh, part of the problem in the first attempts to revise that terminology when it became apparent that uh, it, was, it was having um, rebound effects that, that were not fully anticipated, is that you very quickly get to the problem of, of not characterizing this as a campaign in relation to a particular uh, religious tradition or even extremism within a particular religious tradition. Uh, and, and so when you try to secularize the, the, the nature of the enemy that you're fighting, uh, you end up with words like terror. And there are obviously lots of alternative ways to frame this campaign. And many of the people coming into the Obama administration have spent a lot of time talking about that. But it will be very interesting to see how this ultimately lands in the president's own rhetoric. Because in the end, if the global war on terrorism that President Bush framed is to be replaced by a new campaign, it's going to have to be President Obama who owns that language, repeats it, describes it, maybe writes it himself. And this is a man who understands the power of public rhetoric and public language. I don't know how much thought in the extraordinary array of speechwriting responsibilities that are now before him, how much thought he's really given to what language makes him most comfortable when he talks about the problem of extremist violence uh, on a global scale. But I do think that ultimately, and within six months, he's going to have to deliver a speech uh, that both provides cover for these policy changes and policy uh, evolutions, uh, but which also is his own and that he's prepared to uh, travel with across the world and, and use to speak to audiences in lots of other countries. And, I, you know, in the context of a presidency that's going to have a lot on its plate in the first six months, I don't expect this speech uh, in February. But I do think that ultimately uh, that is going to be uh, – that speech will be coincidental with whatever policy directive evolves out of these more subterranean discussions about, about a new counterterrorism strategy. So I would look for it. Um, at a moment when that 
presidential decision directive process or whatever language they use to describe these things. Um, they always change it from administration to administration, national security decision directive. That, that will come at some point during the first year, and I would imagine there will be a big rhetorical framing around it uh, that will reflect public diplomacy strategy as well as counterterrorism strategy. And so there may be a sort of vector that brings those two things together. You would expect that. Uh, what has uh, the Obama administration inherited in terms of current assessments of al-Qaeda? The president-elect yesterday, I think, uh, made clear that in his own thinking about um, the problem of terrorism, he's still focused as a result of the br briefings that he's had during the transition on al-Qaeda. Uh, we could have a whole other conference about what is al-Qaeda, what does that really mean, but I think my own preference is to think of it as a synthesis of characteristics and properties. Al-Qaeda still is an organization. There is an organization called Al-Qaeda. It has the same emir and deputy emir. It's been in existence for 20 consecutive years. They have, at least on paper, leadership shores and leadership groups. Uh, they don't meet very often. They're under a great deal of pressure. Uh, they have proven themselves to be militarily resilient, at least in the region of the Pakistan-Afghanistan theater. Uh, until about six or 12 months ago, they seemed to be resilient in their ability to reach out to Great Britain and Europe, at least in aspiration by putting together uh, contact with uh, self-radicalizing groups in Europe and, and perhaps giving them some technical support and some technical training. My impression, without having any um, done a purposeful review of this or having access to the kind of information that the president-elect presumably has access to now, is that over the last six or 12 months, as you can see from the record of uh, missile strikes and predator strikes along the, the uh, Pakistan-Afghan border, that at least the operational leadership of al-Qaeda has come under greater pressure than they knew a year ago or 18 months ago. There's clearly a change in the, in the equation that is uh, leading to the targeting of individuals, and there's a, a new focus, certainly, of American resources and attention on that theater. Uh, notably, however, those operations haven't produced uh, sightings of either the leader or deputy leader of al-Qaeda, the organization. So in short, there is still an organization. It's still led by people who want to carry out its attacks against American citizens and American interests. And there's still threat reporting emanating out of the federally administered tribal areas. And I think President Obama essentially has to go to work every day uh, concerned about the 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 rump organization that is called al-Qaeda. But al-Qaeda is not just an organization. It's also a network of like-minded groups. And uh, we saw in Mumbai recently uh, what that network looks like and how aspirations to spectacular attacks and spectacular effects can, can uh, sort of be transmitted through the network or inspire groups that may not be in much direct operational contact with al-Qaeda central Lashkari Taiba. Kashmiri focus group with a long history and uh, some uh, overlap with al-Qaeda personalities is now breaking away from its own uh, relationship with the Pakistani state, st still in an ambivalent state of connection with the Pakistani state, ambiguous uh, and ambivalent, I guess, and, um, and uh, nonetheless taking matters into its own hand, as you saw in Mumbai, and, and trying to define itself uh, in that equation. And, and uh, so the United States, as it thinks about the problem of transnational spectacular terrorism, has to account for the networked uh, groups that, that have always been in and around al-Qaeda, even where they're, they're not um, in operational contact. And al-Qaeda, I think, is also um, a, 
a, has always aspired to be a movement, a set of ideas, a set of inspirations that can reach, as uh, Mark Sageman, who's sitting down here, uh, puts it, followers who are divorced from leaders. And uh, certainly, I think in most of the case studies that you see in Europe, there's an element of this inspirational effect, self-radicalizing effect uh, that al-Qaeda continues to aspire to have. Uh, you know, its, its effectiveness at any moment depends to some extent on the climate in which recipients uh, are inhabiting and, and, and the climate, uh, the broad global political climate in which al-Qaeda attempts to transmit its messages, my own assessment and, and, you know, this and $2 is worth a cup of coffee at Starbucks and there'd be lots of other informed views, I'm sure, in the audience, is that al-Qaeda is politically uh, in on the wane, that, it, that the sources of political strength that it enjoyed three or four years ago uh, are substantially uh, reduced, but that uh, it still has resilience, both as a messaging organization and as uh, a military, self-conscious military organization. And certainly the people of Pakistan know about its local resilience, where it can reach um, and where it can connect with groups like uh, the Haqqani Network and other indigenous regional uh, radical networks to carry out pretty devastating strikes uh, in, the, in, the, in South Asia. Uh, there's no reason to think that it doesn't have the aspiration to carry some of that kind of Mumbai television effect elsewhere where it can. And, uh, you know, I would just make one last point about trying to put myself in, in their uh, head a little bit. You know, I think one thing that Mumbai demonstrated to uh, having just come back from the region to the militant networks, and I think the evidence that's still inside the system about uh, motivation and strategy on behalf of the attackers, which is always very hard to assess and, and uh, discern completely. But essentially, there is, there's a bid for relevancy that's embedded in this attack and a sense that, well, maybe we're not in the game anymore. And after all, if you, if you uh, even carry out a pretty bold strike inside uh, the northwest frontier province or, or in the valley in Kashmir, you, know, you don't really don't get much uh, you don't, you don't get much resonance for those kinds of operations, and that it takes something like Mumbai to, to force the rest of the world to your agenda. And I think that, you know, unfortunately, that is a reminder of, of the uh, benefits from the point of view of these networks to that, that kind of a planning cycle. Um, you know, other sort of elements of, uh, of the world that the Obama administration will have to address that I would just quickly tick off before I maybe take your questions for um, uh, 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, are we yeah. doing all right? Yeah. Um, one is, uh, you know, obviously Iranian proxy war, which is um, underway in very visible and spectacular fashion at the moment. Uh, but which is uh, not just going on in Gaza, uh, but which is, is, is becoming, I think, more and more um, central and complicated and uh, certainly is going to be, as a day-to-day -day matter, an even greater uh, inheritance of the Obama presidency than, than al-Qaeda, frankly, at this, at this point. Um, and we can come back to that. Uh, but there's a whole geopolitical, geomilitary complex built around that proxy contest. And it's, and it's in some ways, it's, it's more complicated than the geomilitary, geopolitical complex that's built around the problem of al-Qaeda. Uh, Pakistani stability, I think, is going to be a um, big challenge and a big focus of the next administration. And here you do see 
the outlines of a, of a self-declared policy shift from the Bush administration away from a policy that in the Musharraf era emphasized almost exclusively direct military-to-military engagement with the Pakistan army uh, towards a framework outlined by uh, first the Biden-Luger legislation, now I guess it'll be um, Kerry-Luger, uh, which will restructure U.S. aid to Pakistan. That, that aid is, I think, the third largest uh, tranche of foreign and military assistance that the United States has, and it'll be uh, restructured to, um, uh, to emphasize the civilian government, civil society, uh, over military aid. It won't abandon the Pakistan army, but it will attempt to refashion a policy of incentives and disincentives to try to improve Pakistani uh, will and capacity, both against the Taliban elements that are operating on the Pakistan-Afghan border and which threaten U.S. soldiers and NATO soldiers and their allies in Afghanistan, but also against these extremist groups like Lashkar-e Taiba and their social service affiliates um, uh, to try to motivate the Pakistan army to forswear once and for all the use of jihadi groups and the maintenance of jihadi capacity and reserve, which has been, frankly, a linchpin of Pakistani foreign policy for for 25 years. Um, Now, my only comment about this shift in approach to the problem of Pakistan is that, you know, it's it's a long time coming. From my own point of view, it's a welcome change in emphasis. However, it's sort of a policy fashioned to address the problem of 2007. It's, it's The problem of 2009 in Pakistan is not a problem fundamentally of civil military relations. It's a problem of insurgency. The Taliban and their, and their um, affiliates are gaining strength. They're holding ground. Uh, it's uh, like the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said about the war in Afghanistan. The Pakistan government is not winning, <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, they are having trouble even defending cities like Islamabad and Lahore from penetrations. They're having trouble defending their own security establishment from penetrations. And so to think that U.S. policy uh, can can address this problem by shifting aid incentives from the military to the civilian side of governance, I think, is is naive. It's not an argument against doing that. It's just to observe that it's, it's necessary but insufficient given what's happening in Pakistan right now. Finally, the last thought I'd offer on kind of framing is that the economic crisis is central to thinking about global uh, geomilitary stability in my mind, that that this uh, crisis is going to have um, many second and tertiary order effects that have not yet surfaced and that I think lie beyond immediate analytical insight. Uh, if you look back just to what happens inside authoritarian regimes when um, Uh, hydrocarbon prices collapse the way they've collapsed uh, in the last three or four months, uh, you can imagine that there's going to be incohate instability and dissent that arises from the changes in the budgetary power of these authoritarian regimes in the Middle East. I mean, the Iranians and the Saudis in the 1990s uh, had a a very difficult time until – Demand and until oil prices turned around and, and, and their, their capacity to essentially buy off dissent turned around. And there's going to be a very uh, uh, sudden whipsaw in the capacity of these governments to, to solve problems around the margin with, with surplus revenue from, from selling um, hydrocarbons. And, and I think 
outside of that world, just globally, this um, this recession is you know is likely to last. I'm not an economist, but I'm just synthesizing what. Uh, if you figure that most mainstream economic forecasts are always too optimistic because there's a bias built into the system that favors optimism, and you take the sort of median forecast now and then you discount it by 10% for just un- undue optimism, it's pretty grim. Uh, you're looking at you know 2010, mid-2010 to 2011 before uh, things start to turn around. And if you think about the fragile states places like Pakistan and elsewhere that are going to feel real consequences during that period, uh, I think you can imagine that there will be problems that we'll be talking about 18 months from now related to that that are not inside the inherited uh, analytical frame. So I'll end it there and, and take some questions. Thanks. I have about two, uh, two or three, depending on how it what kind of responds. <clears throat> yes. Do we have a mic? Please wait for the mic. Hi there, uh, uh, Bruce Schneier. Uh, given that, uh, I mean, a lot of people have been saying that these, a lot of visible things the administration does are recruiting tools, uh, Guantanamo, rendition, torture, and we're also saying that any major changes Obama does are politically dangerous, and I think you're right, he's going to have to tread very likely, lightly. Uh, what are some things the Obama administration can do relatively quickly that will have sort of high PR impact worldwide and low political risk domestically? Uh, well, I think interrogation policy is the first answer to that. It's already decided, and it'll be it'll, it, the, the optics of uh, changing interrogation policy uh, will be substantially greater. The benefits of, of announcing those changes, putting uh, the Uniform Code of Military Justice in the forefront, and uh, associating the Obama administration with the practices of the uniform military of the United States uh, and so on uh, w- will, will be uh, provide that kind of an opportunity without actually affecting a very substantial incremental change in what actually happens, since the number of cases in which extraordinary interrogation policy is actually carried out as a percentage of the whole is very small already anyway. I think Guantanamo was the second opportunity that they were hoping to be able to do right out of the, the um, gate, and unfortunately the optics of that are not going to be so easy to create uh, in the first uh, six weeks. Sorry, you, 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 you do this. No, 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 no. Go ahead, Steve. No, no, no. You, you go ahead. You're, you're in charge. Uh, yes, uh, Senator Biden just recently has visited Afghanistan, I believe, southern Afghanistan. And uh, Dr. Pape was saying that was a particular area of Af- Afghanistan where he said the suicide bombers, I think, were the most active and most likely to have problems. But I was wondering, with... The, the, the switch now, we're, we're kind of drawing out of Iraq and into Afghanistan, and Afghanistan being kind of a poor, mountainous country, uh, do you think that there's going to be any difference treat, of treatment of hostile forces uh, under Obama in, in, Afga- in Afghanistan, hostile forces toward the United States under Obama than under Bush uh, under his new policies? Well, uh, yes, but only because even before the election, uh, U.S. policy and strategy in Afghanistan was under soup to nuts review uh, on the grounds that the war was going the wrong way and that uh, the um, 
even before the Obama administration set Afghanistan as a priority after Iraq, uh, there was a recognition that U.S. strategy in Afghanistan need to be re- needed to be revised. And I think without uh, – we could spend a long time on this, but just very quickly I would say the framework, for better or worse, for the new policy will be a counterinsurgency framework carried forward by the commander of CENTCOM, General David Petraeus, and it emphasizes political civil uh, action over uh, military action. It tries to change the operations of the U.S. military to support a more effective political and economic and civil strategy. That requires more manpower and a completely different approach in some places. I think a second aspect that's already been signaled uh, that's, a, that's sort of easy pickings is to attempt to organize military operations so that close air support is not always uh, the end of the narrative. Uh, and uh, so uh, there'll, be a, there'll be a real reluctance to repeat the pattern of um, uh, air targeting that was, in fact, in fairness uh, to, to NATO and the U.S. military, a function of not having an adequate ground presence to carry out the mission that was ordered. Uh, one more. Time for one more. Yes. Mohammed Kassam. Um, Peter Bergen told me foundation that at peak Al Qaeda was eight hundred. Said nineteen guys. Look what they've done. Speak up, please. <laughs> they said nineteen guys. Look what they've done. Mm-hmm. We've had a tremendously overreaching seminar, uh, response by the, the government here. Uh, you've got an incompetent military in Iraq, even more incompetent military in Afghanistan. Two trillion dollars have been spent. A huge growth industry has developed, look at them here, on national security. What do you think things are going to change? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear what you were saying. What makes you think that things are going to change? Uh... Well, I'm, I'm not actually – I don't think arguing that things are going to change. <laughs> I, I think actually the sum total of my remarks is that I expect more continuity than, than otherwise. All right. Well, thank, thank you very you. much. Uh, thank you, Steve. Please join me. <clears throat> thank you very much. That provides a perfect segue for our next panel, which uh, I asked them to join me here on the stage.